An article in Christianity Today magazine reports that 53% of Pentecostal Christians and 41% of Evangelical Christians believe that if they give more to their church, God will reward them financially. In common parlance, this is known as the prosperity gospel, which could be defined like this. The teaching that believers have a right to the blessings of health and wealth and that they can obtain these blessings through positive confessions of faith and the sowing of seeds through the faithful payments of tithes and offerings. Hundreds of churches now promote the 90-day challenge. Tithe 10% of your income to the church, and if you are not blessed by God in 90 days, they guarantee to return all the money you've donated. As one pastor put it, God says, test me out. See if I'm God. Even if they don't see a direct link between offerings and blessings, Many churchgoers say God wants them to do well. Across all categories, including mainline Protestants, 69% agree with the statement, God wants me to prosper financially. 20% disagree, and 10% are not so sure. The more people go to church, the more likely they are to think God wants them to do well. Among those who attend at least once a week, 71% say God wants them to prosper financially. That drops to 56% for those who go to church once or twice a month. And churchgoers who have evangelical beliefs are more likely to believe this with Pentecostals out ahead of everyone else. Evidently, the 90-day challenge is picking up steam. And of course, in a land saturated with lottery hype, you can see why this theology appeals to people because it's sort of a nicer version of the lottery. Sure, you're putting out substantially more cash, but it's for a good cause and the money back guarantee sounds pretty solid. Although pastors who've gone this route report that just a small percentage of folks actually ask for their money back, I imagine that once caught with the bug of potential prosperity, it's hard to shake. Benjamin Sparks relates that back in the 19th century, there was a name for persons in Asia who came to church because they were hungry for material food. They converted, were baptized, joined the church, and remained active members as long as their physical needs were met. But once their situation improved, and they and their families no longer needed rice, they drifted away from the church. Missionaries called them rice Christians. Of course, Just as today's prosperity evangelists often take advantage of their congregants accruing great wealth for themselves, missionaries could also abuse the people by bribing them with material means for the express purpose of converting them, a somewhat cynical tit-for-tat kind of theology. This ploy has been long discredited now. The faithful follower of Jesus doesn't need a payback for doing good for loving one's neighbor. At our Sunday sharing table, where we serve homeless and hungry folks, we don't require conversion as the natural outcome for our provision. Not to say we wouldn't be glad to have any and all join us in our walk following after the way Jesus blazed. Y'all come. That's part of our hospitality. And in Florida de Campo, in our partner church outside of Cartagena, Colombia, That church doesn't require membership in the congregation for the daily meal served to over a hundred children or for the recipients of the loans in our micro-lending program. 
and we don't ask them to tithe to the church so that God can prove his bona fides. God doesn't require a down payment, as it were, to release a flood of blessings. The Colombian Methodist Church has a laser focus on the poor in their nation. They are clear about the mandate to love God and neighbor. They still need money, of course. The clergy work for next to nothing, but they love God and they want to live the gospel. I've learned from them in this, and some of you have as well, who've gone down there with us. It's hard to reconcile, to make sense of this great material disparity. It is true, as Mahatma Gandhi observed, that there are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except as bread. But there are levels of revelation beyond that, beyond sating physical hunger. There's another hunger we all humans share, something deeper, broader, higher, and wider, something that gnaws at our souls. Hard to describe, really. Hard to pin down exactly this sense of something important, transcendent, that pervades our existence. It defies tangibility. Just prior to the passage we read from John this morning, more than 5,000 people had dinner on a hillside as they had gathered to hear the increasingly famous preacher, Jesus from Nazareth, a local guy who surprised everyone. Just a few days ago, he had blessed a couple of loaves and fish, and lo and behold, all had been fed. As the story is told, Jesus and his friends then tried to find some solitude because the people wanted to make him king. But that wasn't Jesus' shtick. The text put it this way. When he realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew to the mountain. And then he slips away with the disciples across the sea to Capernaum. That's how our passage began today, with the crowds trying to find him. And eventually they do find him, and they question him about his intentions. Jesus responds that the only reason they want him is because he fed their bellies, which leads him to say cryptically, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life whatever that means. But still not getting it, they ask him, well, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do for us? What more are you going to do for us, Jesus? Will you bless us with material prosperity, for instance? Do that and we'll believe. And they mention how Moses provided food for the Israelites in the wilderness. Eventually, this conversation leads Jesus to say that he is the bread of life. A supremely wild metaphor, really. He's prodding them to consider their deepest hunger, namely the longing for reunion with the one who gave them life in the first place. The food Jesus provides is already present and powerful in their midst. He is their sign. Now, we're as fixated on the material aspect of our existence as the crowd in Jesus' time, I think. Throughout John's Gospel, he tries to redirect their attention to the things that matter most of all, those things pertaining to the inner person, the essence of their human dignity and purpose, 
the location of their identity as God's own beloved children. And God's children need spiritual food. This sort of food doesn't come by way of marketing a material payoff. Faith is the actual goal here. But today we're prone to approach the matter like consumers because that's how we've been trained and nurtured, to be consumers and picky ones at that. I buy and accumulate, therefore I am, could be our motto. I fight the same tendency. I'm a product of the same culture you are. We have an extremely difficult time seeing our situation objectively, say, from a vantage point 30,000 feet in the air, looking down on the context of our time, taking stock of what preoccupies our attention, how we hand over our allegiances so easily to things that simply don't matter much at all. Now, quite apart from any political perspective, I have been fascinated with the unfolding trial of Paul Manafort, the international lobbyist and erstwhile presidential campaign manager. It seems that, among other things, Mr. Manafort was a consummate consumer, and it was this very quality that led him into a rabbit hole of needing, wanting to accumulate more and more stuff, ultimately bending, if not breaking, the rules of the game. Emblematic of this hunger for material things, we learned this week that he spent over $1 million on clothes over the last several years, an astonishing sum. This seems such an apt metaphor for our time, I think. I predict that this will be remembered years from now as emblem of life in the first decades of the 21st century. But I honestly don't want to just pick on Mr. Manafort. Rather, I'd like to relearn the lesson about which hungers matter most of all. I want to be pointed back to examining my own heart and mind, my own preoccupations. I want to refocus my attention on true food that sates my deepest hunger. I want to remember that no one is excluded from the food that Jesus offers. And by way of example, I want to remember that everyone, everyone is invited to the meal we are about to share. At Christ Church, we practice an open communion table, meaning there is no precondition for receiving the true food that's offered. We believe this reflects Jesus' own practice. There is no ticket, no confession or proposition to agree to, no obstacle at all from receiving this good gift, save by your own choosing. Rather than talking about it, let's just experience it. And, and importantly, as you come forward today, hold this famous aphorism in your heart and mind. You are what you eat.